Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network, Marshall Poe. Today, I'm very happy to say we have Jared Diamond on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies? Uh, Jared, let me begin by asking this. Why did you write this book? Well, initially, I wrote the book because I find the material so fascinating. I've been working in New Guinea for the last 50 years among traditional societies that until recently were using stone tools and didn't have writing. And what New Guineans do is often very different from what we Americans do, and it's fascinating. That was my initial motive. And then my second motive is that there's a lot that I've learned from New Guineans, and there's a lot, I think, that Americans and Europeans can learn from New Guineans and other traditional people about about everyday things, such as bringing up children, avoiding danger, staying healthy, and getting old. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get right into that after I say that. I think most people understand that, to a certain degree, the New Guineans are standing in the place of our distant ancestors, that is, uh, hunters and gatherers, horticulturalists that evolved in the Paleolithic period from roughly 2 million years ago to 10,000 years ago before civilization, that is, cities and agriculture and the rest. So let's bear that in mind while we assess uh, some of the things that you think we can learn from um, these people. So let's begin with, as you begin in the book, um, it's really about conflict resolution. What can we learn from, uh, I don't know what to call these people. Should I call them primitive peoples? What do I call them? Let's call them tr- traditional people. Traditional peoples. All right. What can we- or- some, some scholars also use the term small-scale societies, societies of a few dozen or a few hundred people rather than 310 million Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense because my wife thinks I'm a primitive person, so I don't um, cast any aspersions on them. So these traditional people, what can we learn about conflict resolution from them? Well, things that we can learn from them are that small-scale traditional societies regularly attempt uh, attempt to and often succeed in settling conflicts in ways that are much more satisfying than our conflict resolution in big anonymous American society. In the United States, if you have an accident, say you have a car accident, it's undoubtedly with a stranger whom you'll never see again, and it gets worked out in the courts. What the courts care about is who's right and who's wrong. The courts don't care how you feel about it. And so one may end up um, being... Um, gosh, what would be the word? Being tortured or plagued by bad feelings for the rest of one's life, hatred of the person with whom one was in a dispute, because the courts don't care to, don't care about emotional reconciliation. In contrast, in small-scale societies, the people with whom you're in conflict are your neighbors. They're the people that you'll be dealing with for the next 60 years. And so, in settling conflicts, it's not a matter of right or wrong that's secondary. Instead, the goal is to settle the conflict in such a way that you can get along with that person for the next 50 years. And so, the emphasis is on emotional reconciliation 
reconciliation. Any American who's been through a divorce or knows someone who's been through a divorce or an inheritance dispute knows that the result of our court system is not emotional reconciliation, but is more often emotional hatred. Mm-hmm. Because court systems are set up, triadic systems in general, are set up as a kind of almost a winner-take-all sort of situation. And so people basically get their knives out very quickly. Unfortunately, that's true. Unfortunately, once you get a state government, the government has laws. The government is concerned um, of establishing precedents that it's the government that settles disputes. The government does not want you taking justice into your own hands and killing or taking something away from your neighbor. (laughs) And that's wonderful because it means that state governments are rather good um, at quelling conflicts and preventing wars within the society. But it comes at a big price, a big emotional price. and that, So that is an area where we can learn from traditional societies. In fact, we can incorporate into state justice the emotional reconciliation of traditional systems. And there's a movement in the, in the U.S. and England, New Zealand, Canada called restorative justice that attempts to establish, reestablish at least a lack of hatred and an understanding between people, between criminals and victims of their crimes, even between murderers and the relatives of the victims. And the goal then is to avoid being churned off the rest of your life with unresolved feelings. Mm -hmm. I think in the context of a state, this would require a lot of sophistication on on the part of everybody involved. I know that, uh, for example, in terms of family disputes, mediation is something that a lot of people do when they're breaking up. Um, And uh, I know also uh, from kind of personal experience, not that I am a drug addict, but I work with drug addicts, that uh, drug courts often treat the whole person rather than simply, um, uh, you know, uh, they don't treat them in terms of just their infractions. They attempt to kind of to, to cure them in a way that, that uh, wouldn't happen ordinarily. For example, they won't prosecute somebody for what is actually a pretty major offense. So some of that is going on, um, which, which I'm happy about as well. So let's move on to another topic, which is related, because we've already talked about families, and that is the raising of children. Western societies are very permissive in terms of letting families break up. Uh, so you have lots of single mothers and single fathers and this other kind of thing, people raising kids on their own. What can uh, these traditional societies tell us about raising children? Well, traditional societies, particularly really small traditional societies of, of, of hunter-gatherers, tend to allow their kids much more freedom to make their own decisions from an early age than we do in the U.S. or Europe or the first world in general. On the one hand, we Americans say that we would like our kids to be socially skilled and self-confident and make their own decisions. And on the other hand, we do everything possible to prevent our kids (laughs) from acquiring those skills because we tell our kids, you have your soccer soccer practice at at 3.30 and piano lesson at 4 and then homework at 4.30, and so we we micromanage our children. It's no surprise that kids, when they get to be teenagers, they become rebellious when they finally are allowed or expected to make their decisions. And it's no surprise that, that many people into their 20s and even 30s have difficulty making decisions. Whereas in New Guinea, I've experienced five- or ten-year-old New Guineans 
kids negotiating with me. They don't ask their parents for for permission. They negotiate with me, and they're self-confident because from from the beginning, their parents have taken the attitude. These kids are going to have to fend for themselves, and they need to be starting to make their own decisions early. That's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of uh, parenting, you mentioned allo parenting in the book. Um, what is allo parenting, and do we do a good job of it, or do, the traditional, or do these traditional societies do a better job of it? Allo parenting means that children are brought up not just by mother and father, the the parents, whether they're the biological parents or step-parents, but that there are a lot of other adults who play the role of parents. In a small New Guinea village, um, friends of mine, American missionaries whose kids have grown up in New Guinea and then come back into the United States, they comment that in the village, essentially all the adults behave like their aunts and uncles. And so in the late afternoon, they didn't necessarily come home for dinner. They would have dinner in whatever hut they were nearest at Mm -hmm. that time in the late afternoon. So there were all these alternative social models from whom to learn, um, more social models than just one's own parents. That's what's called allo-parenting. This one seems to be to be particularly difficult, difficult in at least the American context, where um, families are almost always separated. I mean, I think about my birth family. We were from Kansas, and I don't think anybody lives in Kansas anymore. And that's you know probably twenty or thirty people. We're everywhere now. It is more difficult, and again, the way that the children of New Guinea friends of American missionaries, um, American children, come come to the United States after growing up in New Guinea, they've commented that when they got back to the United States, it was a shock because instead of kids running in and out of houses with the doors open, people went into their houses and they closed the doors behind them, and then they would sit down in front of the mm-hmm. television set. Yeah. It wasn't the rich social life they had had in New Guinea. Right. And one thing you mentioned, too, that I've talked to another author on the show about, and that is that uh, a kind of peer-to-peer effect, children helping raise themselves. That is to say, sure. among you know, sort of people of the same age group, 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds, spending a lot of time together. That's right. Um, uh, children, um, children raise each other. Yeah. There are mixed age peer groups mm-hmm. much more than in the in the U.S. So in a big American society, there are lots of kids of different ages, and so when you send your child to school, the seven year olds are in one class, and the eight year olds are in another class, and so on, because there are hundreds of eight year olds in the vicinity. But in New Guinea, where there's a group of a village or tribe of a few dozen people, in the whole band of 40 people, there may be 20 children, and the 20 children will be of all different ages, so there's no way that you could get a group of 10 seven-year-olds. Instead, the children play with each other. The older children get experience bringing up the younger children. The younger children have as role models not only their parents, but also the older children. And the result is that by the time these kids become teenagers, they're already experienced at bringing up children. And Mm -hmm. so they themselves can be good parents at age 14, which is absurd in the United States. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I remember from my own childhood is the huge and unbridgeable gap between, for example, uh, me, a fifth grader, and a sixth grader. I could just never talk to such a person. Well, they were in sixth grade. 
<laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So um, in New Guinea, the sixth grade, the sixth grade would have spent a lot of time bringing up the fifth. Grade. Yeah, that's probably that's probably right. No, I, I can. Yeah, this this last late into adulthood, at least for for me. Uh, uh, on a related topic, um, you talk a lot about the way that these traditional societies treat the elderly, and I know that in in the case of the United States, it's this is a difficult uh, thing to talk about. In the U.S., we Americans. Um, when we are frank about it, would often say that the treatment of old people is a disaster in mm-hmm. American society because so many old people end up lonely. They end up separated geographically from their children and relatives and lifelong friends. And it's understandable because the typical American moves every five years. All your friends are moving every five years and children as well. And so it's unlikely or it's difficult to end up with your lifelong friends and your relatives. Whereas in relatively sedentary traditional societies, you spend your life in the same place. And so loneliness in old age is non-existent. Of course, you're next to your children and your relatives. But another big difference is that older people are the repositories of information in a society without writing, whereas in a society with writing, if we want to know something, we used to look it up in books or the encyclopedia, and now we Google it or go onto the internet. We don't go and ask, look for the nearest 74-year-old to ask, what's the capital of Canada? We mm-hmm. look it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, having uh, raised young children myself, that in the age of the internet, looking things up on Google, uh, when a little red spot appears on their face... Uh, that's a very scary thing. Because <laughs> what you get back is, you know, you have no way to filter that information, you know, and I'm pretty well educated. Uh, but, you know, I live in a multi generational household now. There are little kids, and there's me and my wife, and then there's an older fellow in his 70s. And, you know, we find that very, I know that he finds it, uh, well, sometimes he finds it frustrating, but other times I believe he really quite in, enjoys it. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's all to the good. Um, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Religion. Um, you would think that uh, you know we live in a very isolated society. I guess one might argue that um, that we uh, segregate people in all kinds of ways. That one place that they might come together is in religious communities. But in my own personal experience, that's not true. Um, how, how, what can traditional societies teach us about the role of religion in in society? It's it's interesting, and I I found it an eye opener. Um, religion has changed as societies have gotten larger. Religion has shed old functions and acquired new functions. And I say functions because religion really does serve functions for a society. Mm -hmm. Just as one example, religion used to have a big role in explanation. Um, Anyone who has read the Iliad or Odyssey or ancient Greek literature knows that the Greeks, even the ancient Greeks, invoked religion to explain a lot of the world to explain why the sun rises and sets, so they said there's a chariot pulled by horses going across the sky, and traditional peoples without modern science use religion to explain lots of stuff, to explain the winds, tides, the existence of different languages, the existence of birds, and so on. Science nowadays has usurped much of that function of religion in explaining, so there's a function of religion that has dwindled with time, but religion has gained other functions with time, such as providing rules for getting around, getting along with strangers. 
in a small traditional society, you don't encounter a stranger, or if you do, you kill him or you run away. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our modern societies, we have to learn how to deal with strangers. And so once we got started getting large societies 5,000 years ago, religion acquired a new role, which is to set out rules of behavior such as the Ten Commandments to tell you what you're supposed to do and not do with strangers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So, again, to go back to the same question, I mean, one of the things that I, I was raised a, a Lutheran, I went to Holy Cross Lutheran Church, and I, I did not find a lot of community in Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Um, do, do people in primitive societies seek community in churches? And is it, this is not to cast aspersions again on the Holy Cross Lutheran Church. It's a fine place, but um, they, they told us what to do in there. They didn't integrate us into a community. So can you talk a little about right. that? In traditional society, it's different. There aren't churches. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's an important point that you raise. Our religions are standardized organizations. Um, any given religion, whether Lutheran, Catholic, Jewish, or, or Muslim, any given religion has its standard houses of worship. If you've been in a Catholic church in Los Angeles, you recognize what's in a Catholic church in Paris. And there are standardized books, and there are professional full-time support priests or rabbis. Um, So religion is standardized. That's not the case in traditional societies where there are not professional priests and there are not professional books and there are not standardized ceremonies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I think that, again, I don't know about traditional societies that that Western religion, at least, is, is particularly poor at is helping people deal with what we might call ordinary life crises, you know, when, you're, when your young child dies or when your, um, your parent gets sick or when your parent doesn't get sick or, or any number of things that, that happen in ordinary lives. And I just don't, at least uh, in, in terms of my own religious tradition, there's just nothing really to, they don't, they don't speak to that side of life. Though that's been a long-term function of religion, namely to provide comfort in the face of life's crises to help you deal with the death or the illness of a loved one or one's own illness or one's own prospect of of death. That's been a function of religion for a long time. And interestingly, um, today, within the United States, um, studies have shown that religion is stronger among poorer people than among richer people. That is counterintuitive because you might think that poorer people have less resources to vote to a church. But an explanation offered for this is that poor people suffer more bad things in life, mm-hmm. and they need more comfort from religion than do rich people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I, I know some rich people. <laughs> they suffer a lot. So let's go on to another topic that you deal in the book. You're a big fan of uh, multilingual education or monk, multilinguality in general. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. Multi, multilingualism is controversial in the United States. There are lots of Americans who think that it's downright bad, uh, to, and it's confusing for children to grow up knowing a, um, a couple of languages, and that you certainly should not have multi-language education in the schools. Well, this is really weird by the standards <laughs> of human history for the, for the last tens of thousands of years. I personally have never met a, New, a monolingual New Guinean. Most New Guineans speak five languages. I've known New Guineans who speak up to, to 15 languages. It's just routine that if you're in a small language group in the United States, so there are 300 million people who speak English, 
English. Well, in New Guinea, the biggest language in all of New Guinea has only 150,000 speakers, and most New Guinea languages have 2,000 or 200 or 60 speakers. So obviously, just to get married and to deal with the people next door, you've got to learn more languages. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, perhaps the most surprising single new thing that I learned in working on my book um, was the discovery made within the last half dozen years that the best protection that we have against the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease in old age is to be multilingual because being multilingual is a constant exercise of the brain and being multilingual is better exercise of the brain than Sudoku puzzles or playing bridge Mm -hmm. or the other things that are recommended to stave off Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I personally blame grammarians for this because uh, they, I think they make it more difficult to learn a language because I know that in my case, when I've learned languages, I've, I've done it best in contexts where nobody cared if I made mistakes, <laughs> where it's just enough to, to say what I needed to say and that was it. So, um, so I mean, I quite agree with you about um, about learning languages. Uh, now, l- l- uh, the last topic that you deal with, and it's not exactly the last, but the diet and exercise. Um, there's a lot of controversy in the United States about what we eat and how much we exercise. What can these traditional peoples tell us about that? All what has to do is look at New Guineans. When I first went to New Guinea in 1964, I did not see a single overweight person. All New Guineans, men and women alike, looked like the ideal of slim American bodybuilders. And that's partly because they've got a physically vigorous lifestyle, and they didn't have excess food, and they didn't have salt, and they didn't have sugar, and they had a diet with lots of fibers, a fiber, a healthy diet. Now, unfortunately, New Guineans, as well as other traditional people, as they acquire the Western lifestyle, they get overweight and they start to contract diseases like diabetes and heart disease and stroke, which are diseases of our diet and lifestyle. So there's an important way in which we can learn from traditional people, namely learn how to stay healthy and not contract diabetes and heart disease and stroke ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, Jared, thanks so much for talking to us today about the world until yesterday. Uh, what what can we learn from uh, traditional societies? Let me ask one final question. What are you working on now? What is your next book going to be? Well, I already have ideas on my next book. Um, I'll say one word. It will be about change at all <laughs> sorts of levels, and it will take me about another six or seven years to write. Yeah, that's about the gestation period for a good book. So, Well, we look forward to seeing that one, and again, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. You are welcome. A pleasure, as always, to talk. Okay, all right. Bye-bye. Bye. 